start talking and sometimes one of the staff start I've never know, done this start chirping this. up like you would <laughs> exactly the same um, I've only been offered out once by a manager <laughs> <laughs> the tunnel. So, let's say you're at Derby you've got Jim Smith bellowing at you from the from the side of the pitch or you're at Cambridge and it's John Beck oh god do you know it's coming Send a shiver down my spine there <laughs> Dave do you know that's coming that blend within your team you need that leadership and tactical knowledge as well within the team and, I, and actually I think tactical knowledge is probably overtaking leadership in some ways I think the old leadership model of a player is dying out a little bit and you know great that he gave you that time and you know I've had lots of managers and you get some managers who come in there and they want a couple of beers you know and, and before you know it they're on about their fifth a couple bit. more for the way home on the bus I'm going to spend £500 on a bottle of wine. Um, firstly, I'm not going to do that. Right, yeah. But Let's if I was, I'm drinking it. I, I don't even think I'm letting the missus have a sip. I'm drinking the whole thing on my own because, you know, that Welcome, is- football fans, to Breaking Lines, the podcast that takes you behind the scenes of the beautiful game like never before. I'm Gary Rowett, former player and manager, joined by the insightful Dave Carolan, a man with his finger on the pulse of football's beating heart. Together, Dave and I bring you unrivaled insight, context, and a few stories from the trenches. Join us as we dissect the game, break down the plays, and explore the intricate dance between managers, players, fans, and the beautiful game itself. This is Breaking Lines, where the game is more than just a match. Gary, one of the areas of the uh, football stadium that hold uh, a lot of mystique um, is, is probably the technical area, an area that you as a manager, you get to own the whole space for yourself. You can command it as you want. Lots of goings on in these technical areas. And sometimes you see managers who dominate the edge of the pitch and others who sit back in their seats. Have you have you a preferred style? Yeah, I think at the moment, I mean, some of the... Yeah, your preferred style is probably to stay quiet and enjoy the, enjoy the <laughs> match. Unfortunately, that preferred style is very rarely... Uh, Feet up rarely, with a coffee, is it? Yeah, very rarely used as you've uh, as you've seen firsthand, Dave. But it's I mean one of the challenges now, the biggest challenges, of course, is only one per well, probably made it easier in some ways, but only one person can stand up. So of course, a few years ago, I mean, even last last season to a certain degree, at times, I mean, you saw some benches and, and ours wasn't too bad, was it? But you saw some benches and there'd be four or five I remember when Bielsa was in town and, you know, there'd be four, five, six of them up all the time and it's actually interesting isn't it? because if you're the manager on the other team or if you're the staff on the other team even though that was successful for them it starts to get really irritating doesn't it because <laughs> you know it's con- it's a constant um, thing so especially if you're trying to do it by the rules yeah and that yeah so I suppose what m- most managers now do is they find a way just to try and bend a little bit of the rules you know you see the likes of Arteta and he'll go and stand five yards outside his technical area and no one says anything. You know, you see Guardiola doing the same and I suppose, I suppose the level that they're at, they're allowed a little bit of leeway, shall we say, in terms of what they, what they can do. But I think most managers, most people accept that it starts calm usually um, and, then, and there's some games <laughs> just end, do. some games end up just absolute chaos, don't they? Yeah, it's it's always an interesting thing. Like when you look across at opposition benches, and I suppose everybody's got their own opinion on the opposition technical area and how they behave. And I'm sure people wonder what we've been up to over the years, battering fourth officials or linos or referees or whoever it might be. But in a really positive way, obviously we're not there just to hammer them for this, just for the good of our own health. But yeah, there's certainly 
been a big change this year. I suppose it's a bit more lonely as a manager, not a strange way, but that when you're out there on your own as opposed to having an assistant stood beside you. Yeah, lonely in a good way in some ways, I think, because actually at times you can sit on the bench, can't you? You've got the technology there to look at any incident so you can be every three seconds. You know, normally I would stand at the edge of a touchline and something happens, you're either onto the fourth or you're back on the bench looking at the replay or you're talking to your staff around what could happen or, you know, I'm talking to yourself about GPS. You know, you might say to me, so-and-so's ran this distance and, and, you know, he's done so much high intensity sprints or whatever and, and he might be, he might be at a, a risk or you might end up. I mean, I've had so many arguments with so many different people. I think about opposition managers. I've had arguments with, I've had arguments with fourth officials. I've had arguments with opposition members of staff because you start talking and sometimes one of the staff start. I've never know, done this. I've start chirping this. up like you would. <laughs> exactly the same. Um, I've only been offered out once by a manager. But there's some really interesting stuff goes on, isn't there? I mean, my personal favourite was, was at Millwall when a guy honestly just would not, stop abusing me like it was one of our fans it was behind the so it was one of the players <laughs> no it wasn't one of the players it wasn't one of the staff but but uh, um, yeah probably did um, but he was behind the away dugout and he just kept going on and on and on and on and after a while I got to about 70 minutes I thought I've had enough of this so I turned around and gave him a mouthful and he actually turned to the steward and went he can't talk to me like that he can't talk to me like that is he allowed to do that and I, and I thought what he's been battering me for 70 minutes and effing and jeffing and calling me all sorts of names and I said one thing to him and I, I then get the blame. So I suppose that probably sums up, sums up being a manager and sums up how it um, works. But it was quite amusing. So, so yeah, there's, there's all sorts go on in there. And, and but you know, there's, it's probably changed over the years as well, hasn't it? Because, I mean, you, you've seen it firsthand where some of the technologies that are used and some of the ways that they're used. I mean, you, maybe you're better to give us a bit of insight into what actually technology-wise we're allowed on the bench now and how we might use that. Well, the the two main pieces of tech that we have outside of just radios that the medics would have to radio back on from the pitch to the to the technical area to tell us about injured players and whether they think they're going to be able to keep going or not. On our side is now the ability to have like live GPS so we can track the players in terms of the physical output through the game and give you kind of a, a real feel as to who might be the players that need to be focused on with regards to substitution in the latter parts of the game or where we have a player who's coming back in from not playing for a while, how they're coping, what the general intensity is of a game or when the game picks up or lulls, you know, the kind of pacing strategies of the game. I, I suppose that's become really useful for us to essentially not only help the performance of the players on the pitch to ensure that we're getting what we expect out of the players, but also be fair to them in terms of not putting them at risk of injuries utilising the facilities and the resources that we have on the bench to allow us to make good substitutions when we have to. The other big one, of course, on the coaching side is is something like the live video feedback and the, the fact that the coaches can now see slightly delayed video footage of the game and be able to highlight things that they see on the pitch or whether that's set pieces or a counter-attack or a goal or something. They can immediately look at what's been sent down from from the top of the stand and be able to give you some, you know, real relevant information that allows you to make critical and, and insightful decisions. I think it's great for a for a manager now, isn't it, and coaches that, you know, you could go in at half time armed with three or four clips to show different players. So, you know, not only do you tell the player, you know, you could show them on a touch, but you can now actually show them the exact footage you're talking about. And 
amazing how many players go, oh, right, yeah, I can understand that now because I can see that maybe I'm over-recovering. You know, if there's a fullback, I'm over-recovering with my centre-half and they keep overloading that, the side of the pitch around them, you know, and, and just allowing them to understand it, see it, break it down in their minds and, and assess what you're actually telling them. So I think there's some great interventions, isn't there? I mean, you've got to use it, quite hard to use it live sometimes because you've got to make sure all the all the clips and everything adds up and it's the same with the GPS stuff, isn't it? It gives us a great understanding. I mean, you know, if you think about some of our, you know, we'll probably go into this in another another chat, but you think about the way that's affected some of our training sessions and understanding the intensity of the game and understanding what certain periods of the game look like and how we can, you know, how we can sort of recreate those in training. But it is a, I think one of the interesting bits now is I think with the noise in the crowd and, and, and everything that goes on, it's actually really, really difficult now to, to intervene mid-game. It's really difficult to give information to players. Players are becoming better at, you know, cocking a deaf end, shall we say. Uh, I think it's <laughs> the, the old phrase, rubber ear syndrome. The old yeah. rubber ear syndrome, especially <laughs> if they're on the other side. Or have done something wrong. But yeah, so yeah. I suppose, you know, there, there there is more of a pressure now to to prepare players in a way during the week. Okay, uh, come on now. You were a player. Let's say you're at Derby, you've got Jim Smith bellowing at you from the, from the side of the pitch or you're at Cambridge and it's John Beck. Oh, God. Do you know it's coming? Send a shiver down my spine there, <laughs> Dave. Do you know that's coming? And at that point, are you, not you necessarily, but would a player almost choose to ignore what's about to be shouted on? I've seen some play. I mean, I've seen some managers where they'll swap the wingers over just so they're on the manager's side, so the manager can keep him on his toes or tell him what he needs to hear or whatever it is. And and remote control. <laughs> yeah, but back then, I suppose you know, in, at that time, football you know was probably a lot more basic in 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 terms of the tactical input, and it was more sort of motivational, really, wasn't it? You know, the information you get from the sideline would often be something screamed at you. <laughs> you ducked, ducked out of a tackle or you ducked out of a header or something like that. So, yeah, I, I've seen plenty of players and I've, I'm sure I've done it once or twice where I pretended like I couldn't hear the manager. It was hard to avoid Jim because, you know, if Jim didn't get you in the first half, he'd get you at half time. Um, so, yeah, you, you were better just to listen to him and put your hand up and say sorry and just try and do it if you, if you could. Yeah, I think probably most of the time the player knows, but uh, it's, is there a little bit of pantomime as well? Not necessarily. Um, on behalf of the, the manager to the player, the coach to the player, but also being seen by the crowd and by the fans that you you are intervening. Is that something that managers are aware of, that you have to almost play the game of being looking like you're coaching when at times, as you said, maybe your preference would be to sit in the side and just as such let the players get on with it? Yeah, well, it was a spell a while ago, wasn't there, where the manager would actually sit in the stand first half. I've never done that, but quite a lot of managers would sit in the stand first half to get a better view of the game and then be in a better position to intervene tactically at half-time and make the changes they needed. I think now there's become such an external pressure, probably from fans to a certain degree, that their expectation is, particularly if a team's not doing very well, for the manager to be jumping up, almost jumping up and down on the sideline. And I think owners are now aware of that as well. I mean, you know, I've, I've actually been asked in an interview before, what are you like on the touchline? You know, do you, do you sit down or do you like jump up and down? You know, as if to say, are you, pa-? basically you might as well have said, are you passionate about the game? And I thought, well, passion comes in many different forms, doesn't it? You know, in terms of football and it isn't necessarily, anyone can jump up and down on the side of a pitch 
but I don't ne- necessarily translates to good management all the time. But I think there is a there is an understanding also from managers that fans want to see their manager engaged emotionally in the team and emotionally in the game. And I think a lot of managers now are probably play- I think there's a good few managers that probably play into that a little bit. Yeah. Um, or or at least aware of it and maybe will gesticulate a little bit more than perhaps they would. You know, it would be interesting. I'd say it would be a really interesting study. Well, here's the easiest way of finding out. Yeah, there you go, Dave. Come on, let's get this let's, let's get this going. Okay. So if we looked back to COVID football and we looked at the same manager and we could split the screen in a game and almost see them with fans there and see them with no fans there. That'd be really interesting to see how people would act. And, and you know what, if the same manager acts in exactly the same way, then, then it's authentic. You know, if it's completely different, you know, maybe the fact that there's fans there, of course, it, it changes the game emotionally for a manager as well. Of course it does. Of course it, it does. Do, yeah. yeah and, and, and you can feel the ebbs and the flows of the game and the, the atmosphere building and, and lowering, you know, so I suppose it would change how you, how you act. But I do believe that, some managers are not, this is not a criticism, some, you know, because I've done it myself, but some managers will be aware of the external pressure, you know, to, to be a bit more emotive on the side of a pitch. There was an interesting um, article where Jamie George, the England rugby player, was talking about almost micro-coaching on, you know, this kind of constant drip of information that is coming from the sideline. So rather than in, say, in football, where it's the breaks in the game are, are fewer potentially because of the, the nature of the types of injuries. And even when the medics go on, like they're going on purely for medical reasons. What we've seen in rugby now is that water boys or people who are bringing on like kicking tees or whatever it might be and different medics are, are essentially messengers. The messengers coming in from the side to give coaching points. And he was almost alluding to the fact that it's over tinkering on how the players are playing the game because the players are in the middle of the game. They're trying to think about the game. And he's almost saying it's got to the point now where it's annoying the players, the overcoaching, the seeming endless need for the coaches to feel like they're coaching the team and constantly adjusting the game plan or whatever. How would you feel about that if you suddenly a player saying, like, leave us more to the game? Does that kind of go against a manager's natural way of wanting to coach? Yeah, I think so. But I think also, you know, having been a player as well, you can understand sort of both sides of it. And I think there are far more tactical interventions now in any sport. You know, I think the way coaching's evolved, uh, not not evolved as in coaches didn't do that previously, but I think there's a far bigger knowledge base, you know, certainly in our game, in the way that people coach and, and the standard of the tactical battles in games are, are becoming more and more fascinating and, and completely different. I mean, you take, you know, I'm digressing slightly, but there's context to it. So if you take the championship at the moment, most teams have got fullbacks that are now rolling into midfield. You know, when did you ever see, you know, like two, three years ago, you weren't seeing that. Now every team's doing it. So, so there is a slightly different shift in as much as, you know, the way some play, yeah. some teams are more flexible. So therefore, in order to do that, you've got to give a lot of information. You've got to do a lot of work within the week. I think the challenge is always that balance, isn't it? I mean, I, you know, again, rugby is probably slightly different, but I remember listening to Eddie Jones say, but he doesn't do meetings on a game day. If he has to do meetings on a game day, they haven't given the right information or enough work within the week. And, and I think other sports, you know, allude to that the work in the week allows you to then go out and just enjoy the game on a weekend. And, and you know, that's what you work for. I think there's always a balance. You know, I think if you look at 
the way we've always worked, you know, we've always had meetings during the week. We've always done work during the week on, on the tactical side of a game in and out of possession. And then, you, and then we would normally do what we'd call a game plan, wouldn't we, before the game. So an hour and a half before the game, I'd name the team if I hadn't named it previously. I'd go through just some points that we'd worked on in the week. But even I got to the point where I just felt as I was doing it almost for the sake of doing it at times. Okay. And I don't, and I don't know whether actually it sometimes makes the players overthink. And I think there's, there's always that balance, isn't there, in the week. So in the week, it's a lot more structured. I mean, I suppose utopia for most people, and I understand what Jamie George is saying completely, but utopia for most players, I would imagine, is to play the game or to train all week and then get that game and play a little bit more instinctively, but with those inbuilt patterns that you've worked on during the week. But I suppose the game now is, you know, it's such a high level problem solving affair that if a manager now sees something within a game that he thinks can make the difference, you know, he's not going to leave that down to the players, even though, you know, the players now need to be engaged a lot more in that, that tactical process. So, I think there's a real balance, isn't there? I think it's a really interesting debate and, and it's a real balance. I mean, you know, what, what's your thoughts? I mean, when you see players nowadays, what was, you know, have players ever spoke to you about it? You know, do we, do we do too much work in the week or do you do too much? Is there too much information? What, what's, what's your perspective on that? I think over the years that I've been, you know, in the backroom team, I think it's, it's a moving kaleidoscope almost of what players want. You know, it's, um, they don't want too much information. They want enough. You, you can't place the opposition on a pedestal, but you can't ignore them. You can't ignore yourself, but let's not focus on us. <laughs> you know, it's like, it's almost whatever you're doing at the time is okay. Um, but the other thing, we'd also like that as well. So I think, I suppose as a player, you do want to be able to almost have that instinctive feel for the game and you're, you're in the heat of battle. And and certainly the perspectives of players, you know, I often talk to, to yourself and to other coaches about it. They, they see the pitch one way and we see the pitch a different way. Like, and they're absolute, absolutely perpendicular to each other. And space and tempos and that are very different to the players on the pitch. I've, I've often looked at the GPS stuff and thought, right, this game is off the charts in terms of intensity. And then you speak to the players and say, how would you find it? And they went, no, it was fine. Yeah. Yet it's it's completely different from what we were perceiving on the sideline, looking at tech, even watching it ourselves. And then you ask them and it's it's completely different. Yet you can also have a game that you think that nothing's happening, but because it's psychologically a very challenging game for the players, they feel more tired. So I, th I think there's always going to have to be some form of communication outside of match day with the players and the coaches to understand like what's the best way and potentially who's the best person to give the information to because not all players as we know have the same level of intelligence or game intelligence who can take on this information who can act on it who's able to have the good level of scrutiny within the game to be able to take it and actually understand that they need to tweak themselves on the pitch something that they've seen that w we may not have even witnessed but there's certainly and I'm sure this is a, a topic for another time the post-match meeting the half-time meeting the post-game meeting where you say come on lads give us your feedback and you're met with a wall of silence <laughs> <laughs> actually that was that was a norm I think for the last about 10 years so 
So, but, it, but it's interesting what you're saying about on the pitch. I mean, I've I've given you know the classic where you write down a team because you're changing the team and you can't shout on and say I'm going from five two three to four two three one and the players are just going to get it. Of course, you'd want to do the work in a week if you felt like you needed that flexibility tactically. But I've often given a, a player a note, and I've seen so many, we've had two left wingers on the pitch before, and you're thinking. Has he actually gate? Has he given an, of my writing that bad? Has he turned it upside down or something? Or what is it? I've seen team players where they'll go, we didn't realise we were playing switching to a back three. And you're like, well, I gave him the note to give to you all. So he what did, the note. I forgot. I forgot. <laughs> I forgot to give him it. Oh, brilliant. Thank you. So our you whole, had one job. <laughs> you had one job. Our whole weekend's result is on a, on a literally on, on a tightrope, you know, based on that player giving the right information and he's forgot. So... Yeah, responsibility and players don't always go hand in hand, do they? But 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 you also get some players that tactically are really really switched on and really clever, and you know they'll give you information that you think actually, like you said, you might not have thought about, or they'll give you a different perspective, or or you can shout onto those players, and those players can organise things really well and really understand it. And I think yeah. that's why you need that blend within your team. You need that leadership and tactical knowledge as well within the team. And and actually, I think tactical knowledge is probably overtaking leadership in some ways. I think the old leadership model of a player is dying out a little bit and actually a tactical understanding model of a player is, is, is coming through and I think they're both pretty similar. I think they're both going to be seen as the same same sort of players um, to a certain degree, but they'll just be defined differently. Well, I think there's a lesson there for all of us. As soon as players leave that technical area and go onto the pitch, we lose all control. <laughs> that's about right yeah that's, that sums it up there you go there are two technical areas one for me one for him he was coming to my technical area and he was not coming for the right reasons he was not coming uh, to give uh, some tactical instructions or something he was coming to press the referee to give uh, red cards now one of the biggest changes that we've seen over the years Gary is um, the plush surroundings of the technical area and the dugout back in the day it was a dugout they literally was dug out of the side of the pitch so i remember carroll road where the actual dugout was that low that the players were looking at about grass level or slightly above um and we're certainly about five foot below the manager's eye level any experience of those yeah there's some strange ones out there isn't there i mean ellen road for example is when you're sat in the dugout, which of course most people want to do at some point because it's the only seat available, unless of course you'd be elsewhere and you sat on your sat on your um your ice box. So and that's probably why or it's bucket rather. That's probably why. Because the dugouts are so low that you're sat in there, you are literally your eyes are at are at pitch level and you can't get any perspective whatsoever on the game. You know, you you hear about managers who sit up in the stand for the first 45 minutes. That's not something that most people do nowadays, no. but that's because they want that overview, that bird's eye view essentially of the game. But the dugout is, some of the dugouts are so difficult. So I remember there having to literally every five minutes, I don't know why I even bothered sitting down because every five minutes I was up the little steps at the side, getting abused by the fans who were two, two metres away. Of course. And then out to the technical area, back in, back out. In fact, I remember tripping about three times on the top <laughs> step in a, in a desperate rush to have a go at the referee. But it was like that, wasn't it? And, and it always interested me because, and we've spoke about this previously, but if you're a sub... And you're trying to assess the game. You know, people talk about, oh, Ole Gunnar Solskjaer famously, you know, used to observe the game as a sub. So therefore, that's why he was so good at impacting the game because 
he'd read a little where he had to stand and where he had to run and little signals of the defenders he was playing against. But now if you look some dugouts, you can't even see the pitch. So how is a player freezing cold at the back of a dugout meant to impact the game when they come on? Because it's really difficult to see it, isn't it? Well, Ellen Road's still like that. Um, There's certainly some really plush, lovely dugout areas now. I think Birmingham this year have just redone theirs and it's a lovely open space. Very different to when we were getting rained on from the, from the roof of St. Andrews when it was a, a heavy downpour and all, all you could feel was getting wetter than you were actually if you were out in the rain because you were getting double the rainfall. That should be the prime operating method of a dugout should be keep you dry. That's the only thing thing you ask as a man, just keep me dry. Give me somewhere, keep me dry or give me somewhere to sit if I'm four nil down where nobody can see me. That would be really, really nice. Um, You know, and there's a few like that in there. Well, Barnsley's one, isn't it? Barnsley's like a really short dugout. It's a really small dugout and it's almost got about a meter. I remember chucking it down there once and I'm having to almost stand at the back of the dugout with the subs just to stay dry because, you know, some of the clubs we've been at, the gear's not waterproof for starters, is it? No, so, not even showerproof. <laughs> Get wetter, actually. Wear in the <laughs> yeah, so... If so, you even have it. <laughs> yeah, okay. So what we... what? Yeah, so are we go... So, of course, I mean, it's probably an easy one, this, isn't it? Dugout, old school dugouts, modern oh, dugouts. No. Yeah, glad they're gone. Yeah. Uh, I'm quite happy with my creature comforts of a heated seat. Don't and miss. plenty of space. Oh, wow. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Although Reading a few years ago had those old plastic school seats, if you remember those, because they once they increase things like the number of subs, then you have to effectively re redesign your whole dugout area, and most clubs just can't be bothered to do that, or don't have the money to be able to like add in another six Recaro seats for the, all the additional staff and all the subs. So they just literally put old school seats that they had down the side. So, so we're going, so we're going, so we're going modern dugouts, another topic, another time, COVID football. That's oh, going to think about some of those dressing rooms that people were designing for COVID football. And there was, there was some really, really interesting stuff. Yeah. There, there? yeah the COVID period. Let's save it. Let's save yes. it. We'll come back to that another time. Right, Gary. I think this topic is something that's always intrigued me. Maybe nobody else in the world. So, uh, Messi, 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 immense Messi, Ankara 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 you know when managers come out at the start of a game and you see them on Sky Sports, you, you come towards each other and a conversation happened. What the hell do you say to each other? You, yeah, it depends. It depends. You know, are you friends with them? Have you managed against them before? Have you got any idea? You know, have you never met them before? I think if you're familiar with them, you know, usually you, you have a bit of banter, you have a little bit of, bit of a chat before the game. It's always funny before the game, except because everyone's best friends, aren't they? Yeah, yeah. You wait till after the game or during the game. But, but at that point, that's your opportunity to say something nice to the opposition <laughs> and the fourth official. So 
Yeah, a lot of the times, you you know, if it's someone, if it's a young manager that I've watched their team and been impressed, sometimes I'll say, really impressed with your team. You know, you've had a fantastic season so far, or you've done a brilliant job, or or if for someone under pressure, sometimes I'll say, you know, just keep going, like, you know, you're doing a good job. Or, after you know, today, of course. Yeah. After today, of course. <laughs> um, but that's what you tend to do. So, so that initial conversation there is usually small talk, isn't it? Small, that, that's all it is, is a bit of small talk. Shake hands with everyone, everyone's best friend, and then the game starts, and then it's carnage. Yeah. I mean, does it ever happen that when you're talking over each other, you're both saying almost exactly the same thing? Well, there's a set pattern of things that most people say in there, like, you know, right. before games. So I suppose there's only so many things you can say to each other. And again, it depends how well you know you know each other. It, you know. Is there... Is there a- an impulse on somebody who's at, at home to start a conversation like, oh, where did you stay last night or something like that? that uh, do you know what? Those things are usually after the game. So I think okay. after the, yeah. So you, so I think, you know, the, the, the pre-game, you have a little bit of a chat about not much because you're only there for, you know, 10 seconds, aren't you, maximum? And then post-game, look, do people come in anymore? You know, there's a lot of managers that don't, don't go in anymore for a drink. Um, it was quite a, British tradition, isn't it? That the manager or the head coach comes in afterwards and, and you share That's a drink together. That's the whole the whole premise of it all a was. A bottle of red. <laughs> a bottle of red, well, hopefully. Um, but, you know, you'd shake out. It's probably a very old-fashioned culture in some ways, but the tradition was, you, no matter what happened in the game, you shook hands and then you had a drink together afterwards. And, and that's what it used to be. Now, so, so for the ones that do come in and have a drink, usual stuff, Dave, right? I'm going to go through three things that I think have been said either to me or to the other manager every single time after a game. So who do you play next? Classic. That's a classic. Most used question. Probably about 25 minutes in where everyone's thinking, okay, what do we, what do we say next? Where did you stay? That's an easy, an easy one, an easy one to, 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 um, or how did you get down? Did you get the train down? Did you drive down on a coach? Fly? If you've mm, never, that never came into conversation. Yeah. Um, certainly not for my, my <laughs> behalf. Um, never been fortunate enough to, to do that. The same sort of things, but most, most managers afterwards, I mean, I've got to say the press takes that long nowadays as a championship manager, for example, but often it's like 40 minutes, 45 minutes before you get back into the room. And yeah, sometimes if you've got family in there or if you've got something afterwards, you, know, you don't want to be in there for another 30 minutes talking about the game. But but I think most people do, don't they? Most, most um, do the same. Well, listen, what do you guys talk about? Because I, you know, I, used, really I used to be boring. talking about a manager looking over and you'd be talking to their head of performance I would imagine it must be the same, no? Oh, we'd be critiquing each other's managers. <laughs> I wouldn't have played that formation and that player. 100% we're starting with that. No, How far did you run? That's yeah. what you did. What was your peak speed? What's, what's, your, what's your max distance this season? Yeah. <laughs> no, it's, it's, it's similar kind of stuff. You know, you're, you're probably reflecting on how their season's gone. Or if it's the start of the season, you're talking about how was your preseason? Did everyone get through it okay? And at the end of the season, you're talking about where are you going for your break? You know, so I, I suppose everyone's got the same cyclical thing. When you get to know people better over the years, you get to know them and their families and you, you can have a longer and better conversation. You talk about other stuff and maybe you share a few uh, inside stories on players or on coaches or on managers or whatever that might be. I think also you, you what's been really interesting to me is, you know, 
which managers, which managers are unexpected visitors to your room afterwards and, mm. and perhaps stay longer than normal. So, um, I remember when we were at Millwall, uh, I remember Vincent company coming in afterwards and, and, you know, maybe sometimes without knowing someone like that, you think played at top clubs, Man City, work with top people, maybe he's not going to want to come in and have a drink. And he came in, he was in there for about an hour. You know, to the point where everyone was kind of leaving around us, and he was still there. I think, he had, after, I think he had a flight. I think he had a flight or a train to catch from London, and he was brilliant. You know, he was in there for chatting away, telling us about stuff they were doing, talking about you know, really, really open. And I hadn't met him before, but I thought, what a fantastically engaging character, and and you know, great that he gave you that time. And you know, I've had lots of managers. And you get some managers who come in there and. They want a couple of beers, you know, and, and before you know it, they're on about the fifth beer. A couple beer. more for the way home and, and the bus, and depending you, on the They're result. on about the fifth beer and you're thinking, God, are they ever going to go? So <laughs> so you get different characters, but I suppose that's the beauty of football, isn't it? That, you know, there is still a lot of different people in the game and, and, and you know, you get some really interesting interactions after the game. Over the time I've been involved in it, it's it's moved from being the manager on his own kind of in the room and the two managers were talking. It was very sacrosanct. You, you didn't know what was said. Over the years, then it's grown to more of the staff going in there and then more of the opposition staff coming in afterwards to the foot. To the point where you need a bigger room. Yeah. And also you get the, you know, I don't know, the director of football will come in, the chief exec will come in, the owner might come in. Yeah. And in the end, there's probably about 25 people in there. Actually, in some ways, it, not a shame because obviously everyone's together and everyone wants to share that sort of post-match discussion, don't they? But I think actually sometimes probably should be the manager and the staff the immediate staff, because actually, yeah, you'd, you'd share a lot of ideas. You'd share a lot of information. You could talk openly, um, you know, and I think that was, it was quite nice when that happened, but I think it has changed. I mean, I got to the point on away games sometimes if it was a long away game, it was a long journey back, you know, even I would go in and I'd always go in, I'd always go and, you know, say hello. I'd always go and have five minutes. I wouldn't necessarily yeah. go and have a drink. I wouldn't necessarily go and sit in there. A lot of the staff would already because they haven't got the press and the media duties afterwards. So obviously they would tend to do that. But I think it is something that that's something that's going to probably die out over time. And imagine it's a shame because it's a it's a really nice tradition that you can almost go to war with each other during the game and share a beer afterwards and and um, and be mates. And, and, and I think we've heard some managers have come from abroad who've now picked up on this tradition because it, it isn't so much of a tradition on the continent or in other countries. Um, and they've actually really liked it because it's a way of building rapport and building friendships. You know, it's a, it's a high pressure job, isn't it? And there's only a few people who know what it's like, especially at the top end of the pressures of being a football manager or being a head coach. Yeah. And also, yeah, some of the younger managers coming in now are not, they don't really do it, you know? So, so I think it's, I think it's changing and I think it's different, but you know, one thing I've never done and I've heard of these stories, you know, when you've, you've had an FA Cup game against the top man, yeah, we've met, we've, you know, we've played against the likes of Mourinho at Man United and, and I've never been one, I bought Mourinho a really expensive bottle of wine or you know, someone's, Keep that wine someone's bought it. <laughs> exactly. If I'm going to spend 500 pounds on a bottle of wine, I'm, firstly, I'm not going to do that. Right. Yeah. But Let's if I was, I'm drinking it. I don't even think I'm letting the missus have a sip. I'm drinking the whole thing on my own because, you know, that is a blatant waste of, of um, you not stick that on expenses? good alcohol. Mm, ice and towels. Uh, ice and towels. Not, yeah. not sure about that one. Yeah.
So, Gary, we've covered a fair few topics today, and we've obviously seen that the game's changed, not always for the better. Like, do you miss Bovril at halftime? <laughs> Bovril? Bovril. Do you know what? I've never ever... I can honestly say this now, and I don't want this to be a revelation on, on air, but I've never had Bovril. What does it even taste like? I, I've definitely I, never had it as a professional football. I've had a coffee at halftime. I've, I've seen all these different drinks afterwards. I've seen some of the pre-drinks coming in, pre-workout drinks, pre-game drinks. Isotonic. Never had Bov- <laughs> it's Bovril isotonic. Bovril or isotonic. <laughs> I think Bovril was like... What does it li- even taste like? I think it's liquefied Marmite. Is it? Oh, well, there you go. Well, I hate Marmite. Right, and I hate Marmite as well, so that's probably why I've never... I've never, um, yeah. never tried it. I don't. I don't know whether it was just a thing that was, you know, from times of yore when people just had cups of tea or a bovril because it was kind of a meat-based, but maybe it was protein supplementation or a wee nip of whiskey or some other form of alcoholic thing. Ooh, Did you ever come across that? Now you're talking. Yeah. Well, firstly, I've, I've, as a football fan, I've been to a game and I've had a hot drink at halftime, literally just to keep my hand warm. <laughs> like I've, I don't even That's think I've even small. sipped it. Yeah. Or it didn't like soup, anything, just to keep your hands warm. Do you know what? I, I've seen different managers. I think it's very rare. Uh, it's very rare. I've, you know, I've been in a game a long time and I've only seen probably twice where somebody has brought out before the game like a shot of whiskey or something. And I remember a player taking a shot who didn't actually drink. And for the first 10 minutes of the game, (laughs) I've seen him run past the ball and miss the ball completely. You know, it's several occasions. I've seen players who've not had drinks also do that. Well, that is very, (laughs) very true. At least your guy had an excuse. That's very true. I think, yeah, it's it's a strange one, isn't it? Because it obviously used to happen. Um, It obviously used to, be commonplace in football. But I think now, look, with a professionalism, A, would you ever admit it as a manager that you've done, you've offered it to the players? And B, as a player, would you ever admit that you've had it? I don't know. I think you'd have to probably, we'd have to get some older players on than certainly us young things to so, decide whether that was commonplace or so not. So we're not really the people to answer the question of, is this for the good of the game that Bovril has left? Alcohol, we could probably assume is probably to the benefit of players' performances. But yes. Bovril, we're, we're a Bovril, bit. I'm saying uh, there's got to be better choices than Bovril. Uh, 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 any fo- any good football, what do you call it? Kiosk? What do you cook? Have yeah. I gone? Yeah, I don't know I gone like, with this. I'm a celebrity. Get me out there, <laughs> Keith. Keith. Uh, I don't know. Yeah, but Bovril, I, yeah, not Bovril, not for me, Dave. No, okay. Bovril, if you are listening. We are available for sponsorship. So <laughs> Absolutely. Branding we could is learn to love it. Yes, could learn to love it. Yes, yeah. I don't think so, but there we are. And another thing, when I first came into the game, young, uninitiated as it was the football world, large baths that used to be in dressing rooms. What was that all about? What was the idea behind like a mass team-based bath Got no idea, but they were, I thought they were brilliant. Right? Not, yeah, not yeah. I'm not going to okay. like digress slightly on why I thought it was brilliant. No, but just everybody, it was just accepted, wasn't it? Everyone basically just, just as soon as the game had finished, you knocked your boots off in the shower a lot of the times, which I'm right. sure the the uh, caretakers at said grounds weren't too happy about, but. And then you got. I've even seen players get in the big bath with their boots on just to clean them. 
Um, so they're all sat, sat in the bath. in the bath with the boots on. Cleaning yeah, the booths. So uh, there's that mud. A, oh, Dave, right. well, imagine well, imagine a bath with... <laughs> tr- let's go back to, you know, when there were, say, 14 players in the squad, yeah. right? So you'd have 14 players in the bath. Let's say some of them are not in the bath. You'd have probably seven or eight yeah. in the bath at one time. Just played a football match. Remember what the old pitches used to be like. There wasn't there wasn't a Desso or a Sisgrass <laughs> pitch then. Was been it? Invented yet. If you had grass, you were happy with it. Yeah. Um so yeah. The stuff that used to go it I was gonna say the stuff that used to go on in the bath then. But, <laughs> okay. Yeah, which is another Different podcast. podcast. Yeah, but the stuff that used to you know, like the mud, the grass, uh, everything that went into that bath and 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 um but it was easy, wasn't it? You know, when when you started getting individual baths, didn't you? But, but it was like That's, a little bit. If you went to yeah. a posh, if you went to a posh ground, or if you were lucky enough in the FA Cup to get a get a good draw, and you went to you a probably ground had that Leicester, didn't you? You probably had like a nice individual baths there. Well, no, because I was at the old Filbert Street. Yeah, I didn't go to oh, a new, course, didn't yeah. didn't didn't, uh, didn't go to the new ground. So. So yeah, but that's the thing, isn't it? So so then it went on to that, then it went on to showers and you know whatever. So so yeah, back in the day, I, I I'm a big fan of the bit. I think for health and safety reasons, it probably got uh, got kibosh. But um, yeah, I was a big fan of the big bath. I don't mind admitting it. Good for a camaraderie then. That's what you I'm know, saying. No, no, Everyone no, is sitting no, there. No, Everyone would no. be chatting about the game. And and that's what it was. Like, it wasn't the fact that you know well, there were the lads weren't on the phones like checking on their fantasy scores like three minutes after the game. Do you know what? what? Didn't even have a phone then, did did you? <laughs> the old Nokia flip in your pocket where you could basically text and that was it. But again, everyone would chat. Yeah. So so and, you look and they at. Would, like, I remember listening to the players and they would be discussing the game. They'd be yeah. discussing you know events that happened in the game or things that they saw tactically, and they were almost self coaching. You'd be sat in there saying the warm-up was rubbish, wouldn't you? You'd be saying the warm-up was rubbish. You'd be saying we're not fit enough. You'd be saying the manager's got his tactics wrong. We should be playing. No, you you never did that. You just sat in there and probably spoke about the game for a bit, probably spoke about where you were going that evening um, on on the night out. Um, But yeah, it it drove camaraderie. It created camaraderie. It was just one of those old-fashioned things that no one would even think about now, but having been involved in football, 20, 30 years ago. Um, that was a that was something you don't see anymore. But but yeah, I, I was a big fan. Yeah, well, I did understand as my early kind of internship. There wasn't internships, but as a young practitioner that oh, you I didn't had get chucked also, in the bath, did you? No, never got chucked in the bath, but had to clean it out with the kit man. Oh, wow. Because there were only... There was only the manager, the assistant manager, the physio, the kit man, and myself. So that was that was the whole of the management. Scouts were actually scouting. They weren't just watching our own games, you know. I've, like, I've seen I've seen interns and apprentices being thrown into the bath <laughs> as some sort of crazy initiation ceremony. That that sounds um, quite like compared to some of the initiations. Yeah, but, no, I go. probably would have there taken that being just chucked into the bath. But there you go. So what we're saying then for the good of the game, it's gone or not really. I, I think for hygiene, uh, no, hygiene. I don't mean you can bring it back. I think for hygiene reasons, you got to move forward. But okay. I was a big fan, but maybe maybe individual showers. Okay, so in, in a kind of room 101 kind of way, baths are gone. Baths are gone, sadly. Thanks for listening to today's podcast. We hope you enjoyed this episode. If you did, please give us a like or subscribe to us on your chosen podcast provider. We look forward to seeing you on the next show.